America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day for me because I get the chance to speak to an old friend who I admire profoundly. Uh, Peter Robinson is the Murdoch Distinguished Policy Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, where he writes about business and politics. He edits Hoover's indispensable quarterly journal, the Hoover Digest, and hosts Hoover's video series program, Uncommon Knowledge. Uh, Peter is perhaps best known as uh, a speechwriter who has achieved immortality in that regard because he penned a world-changing speech that uh, President Reagan, his boss, delivered at the, uh, at the Berlin Wall. And uh, Peter is the author of books including How Ronald Reagan Changed My Life, It's My Party, A Republican's Messy Love Affair with the GOP, and the best-selling business book, Snapshots from Hell, the making of an MBA. Uh, Peter, I, I, I was so eager to speak to you on a number of points. Do you happen to know, as a um, uh, veteran speechwriter for Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush and then for President Reagan, do you happen to know if uh, there was any American speechwriter who participated in preparing President Zelensky for his uh, epical speech before Congress the other day? Do not know. That's a very good question. I do not know. He quoted or alluded to Winston Churchill, Martin Luther King, and then just, I believe it was yesterday, he spoke to Congress earlier this week, and then I believe it was just yesterday, he spoke to a European body, one body or another of the European Union, and there he quoted Ronald Reagan and the tear down this wall speech. So your, my ears went up in the same way that yours did, that this is a man who is alive to historical precedents, including rhetorical precedents. And I thought to myself, hmm, has he got, who's, who's, I don't know any, any American speechwriter brave enough to go to Kiev to help him with his speeches. Let's put it that way. I, I think we're going to have to suppose that President Zelensky himself has read speeches, has been following politics, and pays a lot of attention to history. Yeah, I, I, I understand he's a pretty accomplished writer. I, I know that mm -hmm. he was known for writing his own TV programs when he was a, right. playing the president of Ukraine uh, in a, uh, with a comedy edge uh, right. before he was actually elected president. So... Right. Uh, it's all rather remarkable, given the fact that he's never lived in the United States, to the best of my knowledge. He doesn't speak perfect English. Uh, were you as impressed by that uh, speech, both in terms of substance and performance skill, as I was? Oh, of course I was. Of course. I, I mean, apart from anything else, I spoke earlier this morning to Andrew Roberts, the Churchill biographer, and Andrew said... Remember, of course, we remember now that Churchill's rhetoric was so moving and so brilliant and so skillful. But before comes the rhetoric, here's what struck Andrew Roberts reminded me. Here's what struck the British people who were listening to Churchill. He was there. He was in London. He was not going to leave. 
no matter what the Germans did, he was going to fight to the end. And Zelensky has, you just begin, before he even opens his mouth, he's in Kiev, which has been under bombardment for going on three weeks now. If the Russians have an explicit kill list, and I believe our intelligence agencies have seen several reports that we believe they do, he's at the top of the list. He's risking his life by remaining there. And the moral authority, the lump you get in your throat from listening to a man who's in that position before he even begins to speak. And then he speaks beautifully, compellingly, in ways that are clearly intended. He knows his audience clearly intended to touch us and to remind us of great moments in our own history. This is a remarkable figure. Vladimir Putin has his hands full taking on Zelensky before you even get to the problems with the Russian military, which are now becoming so apparent. Did you happen to see any of the video from um, the pro-war rally that uh, Putin staged today in, in Moscow? I saw, the answer is no. I, there was, I, saw, I passed something on, I was going through my Twitter feed and there was some scene of people ra waving Russian flags, but that's all that I noticed. Okay, it's a lot of Russian flags and a lot of entertainers and a lot of people pledging eternal loyalty. I think that the Financial Times columnist, Max Seden, has said it very yeah. well. It looked like it had been staged by WrestleMania. Uh, right. And, uh, it, and then there was a, a very telling glitch that people have made a great deal of. It, how, how does, do we reset or do we want to reset? Has has there been a change? There clearly has. I, I remember that people used to say after 9-11, nothing will ever be the same. Right. Well, well, it, that was true for a while, but it's kind of became the same afterward. Mm -hmm. Is this something like that, or do you think there's some more permanent change that particularly in Europe people are, are going to experience because of this war? Yeah, well... I'm about to express a few thoughts that I'm 100% certain have occurred to you, Michael, because although we don't get to speak that often, we think alike. <laughs> My answer is, I believe this represents a permanent change, but I certainly hope it represents a change. The long strategic question does not particularly involve Ukraine. That may seem like a cold thing to say, but that's not quite the way I, it's not at all the way I mean it. The long question was the rise of China and China's ability and eagerness to make common cause with Russia and with Iran and to send out feelers to India and to try to keep certain African countries and certain Latin American countries off balance and, and in debt to China. The long strategic question is whether the West, and I, I define the West in a broader sense of values, so that it includes Israel and it includes Japan, whether the West will remain a cohesive enough entity and will demonstrate enough political will to defend itself. That's not the question for tomorrow or the week after tomorrow, but for the next quarter of a century. And lo and behold, what have we seen over this last couple of weeks? We've seen Europe, we, well, perhaps the most striking development has been that the new chancellor of Germany, who, as you, of course, know, Michael, is the, the leader of the center-left party in Germany, right up until the day before the invasion, it looked to me 
Vladimir Putin had achieved a strategic aim that had eluded even Stalin, and that aim was a neutralized Germany. Germany seemed to me to be detaching itself from the United States more and just drifting away. And Putin invades Ukraine, and Olaf Scholz, this new center-left chancellor, calls the Bundestag into an emergency session, the first time they'd ever met on a Sunday in all of history. He announces that there's going to be an emergency supplemental military budget of 100 billion euros, that Germany, for the first time in years and years and years, is actually going to live up to its NATO commitment and begin spending 2% of GDP on defense, that it's sending materiel and arms to Ukraine. And not just helmets. And not just helmets. That's exactly right. I mean, this, this was breathtaking. Suddenly, you get the feeling of NATO, not just with I believe Donald Trump, for many his many failings, was giving voice to a very understandable American frustration that Europe had become a group, a bunch of free freeloaders. They were free riding on the American people, on taxpayers willing to cover their defense. Suddenly, you get the feeling that NATO isn't just the United States plus freeloaders; it's a shared community of values all over again. I, and that's profoundly well said, and I agree, of course, with every syllable, not just words. More with Peter Robinson, the uh, great former Reagan speechwriter and uh, perceptive author and columnist. Coming up. speak uh, to Peter Robinson, the uh, Murdoch Distinguished Policy Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. And uh, many people know his, his great work with Uncommon Knowledge, a uh, video series which uh, <laughs> is never less than fascinating. And Peter, of course, served as a very distinguished speechwriter for President Reagan and uh, for uh, vice president and, and then uh, later for President George H.W. Bush. Um, yeah, I know that you ask yourself, because we've talked about this before, uh, as, as I think anyone would with your background and your experience and your immersion in some of the prior history that is very relevant to what we're going through now, You'd ask yourself the question is, what would Reagan do? What would Reagan say? How would Reagan react? Um, do you think he would be surprised at all, as so many of us have been, at the rapidity, the almost instantaneous uh, unification of people across political lines here in the United States? And of us with our European allies, with our allies in Asia, I just heard South Korea just made a, a major commitment to send supplies and equipment and weapons to Ukraine. What is it about this particular horror, the the war on Ukraine, that that has so much aroused the conscience of the whole world? How'd that mm -hmm. happen? Mm -hmm. 
you mentioned Reagan. And the way it may be worth taking just a moment to to describe the way I believe that he thought. Whereas Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, both remarkable people, I have great respect for both of them. Kissinger, at the age of 98, just published a remarkable piece in the Washington Post on Ukraine yesterday. But they were they were constantly making calculations. You could almost think of them as tumblers turning in their heads. And with Reagan, it was a kind of moral imagination. He begins with some notion of right and wrong. And that seems to me to be what's going on here. They're just at the human level, the invasion completely unprovoked. It begins to become uh, a brutal almost immediately. Apparently, the Russians, the Russians seem to have supposed, or Putin seems to have supposed, there could be some kind of lightning strike that half the population of Ukraine would welcome the Russians and it would all be over in three days. Well, it became clear right away that that wasn't going to happen. So you get this notion of outraged innocence of a country that has great faults but still is coherent as a country, that still is groping its way toward some kind of democratic system, and that there's honor in that, that there's something to be respected and even noble in that effort on the part of the people of Ukraine and of the, even the, the government of Ukraine. Corruption, yes, all of that, part of the human condition, especially for Eastern countries and Eastern Europe countries that suffered under communism. But what they were trying to build, and then Putin just comes in and smashes it in a completely unprovoked way. <laughs> that just seems to me, it reminds us that human beings are human beings. This is why speeches work, Michael. It's why people tune in and listen to Michael Medved on the radio, because we all we can't help ourselves. We do have some notion of right and wrong. We all possess a moral imagination. And when a Ronald Reagan gives a speech appealing to it, or Michael Medved appeals to it every single day on his radio show, or when Zelensky appeals to it in his speech before Congress, we all respond. That, it just seems to me that it's a kind of reminder, stop me before I become totally trite and banal here, but it's a, it is a kind of reminder of some fundamental shared humanity. Here we are deep into the 21st century, the tech world, the communists in China are supposed to be inventing an entirely new kind of model. We don't need democracy anymore. We don't need these old-fashioned notions of rights and rights. And then Putin rolls in in this brutal act against Ukraine, and everybody says, no, no there's still a fundamental notion of right and wrong. And he has violated human dignity in a way that we just cannot permit. I, let us hope that it, it cannot be. I mean, it can't, it's too late to say that it could be prevented because it's happening and it's going on right. now. And right. the real question now is how do we make sure that it doesn't happen again? That there right. isn't uh, an, an attack you mentioned China earlier, an attack on uh, Taiwan. Taiwan, exactly. Uh, so uh, or that, that, that Putin doesn't go on to, uh, to right. Poland or to the Baltic republics more likely or to other NATO right. nations. Exactly, exactly. Andrew Roberts, I mentioned earlier that he and I spoke this morning, he had read all 6,000 words of Putin's speech that he gave uh, some months ago <laughs> saying that 
Ukraine wasn't a real country, it was just part of Russia. And what struck Andrew was that Putin mentioned Lithuania 17 times. Ukraine is just the first stop on his way to a bigger, to, the, to reestablishing a Russian empire. Now, if we have a minute or two left in this segment, I want to ask you a question because I don't get to talk to you that often and I want to hear what you think. Please. So here, so here we have two parallels, or excuse me, two, two historical incidents. Churchill says in his history of the Second World War that never would a war have been easier to prevent if we had acted sooner. So the Germans march into the Rhineland and Europe does nothing. Hitler takes Sudetenland and then he takes all of Czechoslovakia. Still, Europe does nothing. Clearly, we should have acted. That's one model. Another model, though, is 1956, the Hungarian Revolution. And Dwight Eisenhower does not send assistance to the Hungarians. He permits the Soviets to roll their tanks into Budapest and crush the Hungarian Revolution because was Dwight Eisenhower a coward? Obviously not. He makes the difficult prudential decision that if we were to become involved, we might risk a wider war that would do more damage than it could possibly do good. Which of those precedents applies most closely to Ukraine now? Zelensky is asking us to establish a no-fly zone there's an argument that that's tantamount to our becoming directly involved in a war with Russia. What? Clearly, we have to be prudent, and clearly, we have to act on our ideals. How do you see it, Michael? I'll tell you the one thing that immediately occurs to me, Peter, and I thought about this a lot, and I, I went back and looked at some of that history of the Hungarian Revolution, which I, I remember it as something that was it was just there for a couple of days. It wasn't. It was a, a number of months, and they had installed a, a another communist in charge of Hungary, who was, if such a thing is possible, an enlightened communist who wanted to create more free institutions. History indicates Dwight Eisenhower was probably right to avoid a potential nuclear war, but there's a very, very big difference between that situation and what we have now. I want to get to that and more with Peter Robinson coming up on The Medved Show. and talking about two of the greatest leaders from uh, World War II, actually. Uh, uh, president Dwight Eisenhower, who later became president, was General Dwight Eisenhower during World War II, and Winston Churchill. Uh, Churchill, looking back on the history of World War II, uh, suggesting that it could easily have been prevented with different policy. And uh, and Dwight Eisenhower demonstrating that as much as he clearly wanted to do it, when there was a, a first flowering of resistance to communist tyranny, which occurred in the nation of Hungary in October in particular, it actually all the, the whole year of 1956 was revolutionary in Hungary, and then Russia came in with tanks. They killed thousands literally no one knows how many thousands of 
uh, Hungarian people, 22,000, were imprisoned by the Russians. And uh, there were hundreds of thousands, literally, who fled the country. They actually became known as 56ers coming here to the United States. But the, the difference between the situation uh, now and Hungary, and uh, the reason that uh, I, I think that the Hungary analogy just doesn't apply at all, is because what, what Eisenhower was called to respond to was a complete premature, you could say, undoing of the communist system. In other words, the status quo there was the Warsaw Pact versus NATO and one side, the communist side, versus the other. And uh, there, it would have been very difficult if Eisenhower had tried to have some more supportive response to rally our allies the way that they have rallied on this. Ukraine isn't just a, a new government. This is a government. Zelensky has been in power. They actually, the same year that uh, Crimea was taken, they had the Maidan and they had a mini-revolution. Since 2014, the, uh, the idea of even a pro-Russian faction in, in Ukraine, it just doesn't exist. And I think that's been the biggest shock to Vladimir right. Putin and a lot of the commentators is that uh, they expected that literally there would be a big segment of the Ukrainian army that would go over right. and fight with the Russians. And the right. answer is there's no one. So I think that that difference between a government that is organized and, and also the, um, the warning for this Russian strike. I mean, I think the administration was pretty smart in giving all their intelligence, making it public, letting people know this was coming, mm -hmm. because in no way did it diminish the horror. It all still seems so surreal. Right, right, right. That, that to me is one of the most striking aspects of this. I haven't, I'm no expert on Ukraine, of course, but, um, you look at Henry Kissinger's piece in the Wall Street Journal, I beg your pardon, in the Washington Post of just yesterday, as I recall, and he's saying, well, the eastern Ukraine is 60% Russian-speaking, it tends to be Russian Orthodox, whereas western Ukraine is Ukrainian-speaking, it tends to be Ukrainian Orthodox, there are differences. But Lord knows, I don't want to tangle with Henry Kissinger's historical knowledge, but what's happening is that, yes, Eastern Ukraine used to be pro-Russian, but it isn't now. In the act of threatening Ukraine and then of invading Ukraine, as best I understand it, maybe you have read up on this as well, Michael. This is the thing about talking to you. I've got sketchy knowledge of this or that, and then I raise the issue with you, and it turns out you've just written a book about it or read a book about it. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but in the Donbass, I believe just before the invasion, there was some polling done. And even the Russian-speaking members of the population in the Donbass, the Donbass is the region of Ukraine farthest to the east, closest to Russia, even the Russian-speaking population now called, called itself Ukrainian instead of Russian. That this notion that Ukraine was really never a, an independent nation, 
that it was really only a subset of Russia. In, to the extent that that may ever have been true, Putin has now made it untrue. His attack has called into being a genuine national consciousness, maybe the way to put it. And, and that national that. consciousness really does go way back. I, I did a piece this week uh, on Monday mm -hmm. uh, for uh, Wall Street Journal uh, about Putin's hero, Peter the Great, and why Vlad the Mad was not <laughs> any Peter the Great. Uh, but but Peter the Great in 1720 uh, yes. issued a, a, an edict uh, whereby they were supposed to destroy all books written in the Ukrainian language and wow. making it a basic criminal offense for people to speak Ukrainian. And uh, that was at a time when, before the Battle of Poltava, there right. had been some hanky-panky with uh, Matsepa, who was a Cossack leader. And in any event, there was bad blood, uh, certainly. And, and Peter's grandson, Peter II, who took over, uh, further tried to suppress uh, church services or, or hymnals or Bibles, anything written in Ukrainian. Now, they obviously right. have not succeeded at all in stamping out the Ukrainian right. language. Right. But right. that's been something the Russians have tried to do. And, and it was a hallmark of communism as well, was russification, mm -hmm. uh, trying to make everybody fit into this new Soviet man who had a distinct R Russian tilt. It was fusing the nationalism and the communism. And... Uh, <laughs> And May I ask one more question, one more big question for you, Michael? Please. Why is it? I'm thinking now of, um, I can't remember where Faulkner wrote this or read this, but uh, he's talking about, there was something about Faulkner, Faulkner said history isn't dead. It's his Nobel Prize speech in 1951. That's it, okay, can you, of course, this is Michael. I raised something and it turns <laughs> right. out you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. He, said the, he says the past uh, isn't dead. And he said the it, past isn't dead. In fact, it isn't even past. It isn't even past, exactly. So here's the, to me this deep puzzle. None of what I'm about to say excuses Putin one bit. But here we have Vladimir Putin who 40 years ago was a punk who just joined the KGB. Now he's running the country, and he's behaving in the same way Peter the Great behaved 400 years ago, and he's behaving the way Ivan the Terrible behaved 500 years ago. Why can't Russia catch a break? Why did this wonderful moment in 1905 when there was a liberal imp, why did they lose to the Bolsheviks? Why did Yeltsin give way to this authoritarian Putin instead of, look, look at them. They, li they live so close to the West. We know that it runs right through Western history, beginning with Peter the Great, if not earlier, I beg your pardon, right through Russian history. At some deep level, they want to become like us. They want to become prosperous. They want free markets. They want Western technology. And somehow or other, there's some dark cloud over all of Russian history that keeps the, under which they revert again and again to this authoritarian impulse and to crude, violent expansionism. Okay, we have so little time. I've thought about this a great deal because when you're studying Russian history, they have a period of time called the Time of Troubles. They have nothing but times of troubles. 
first of all, it's geography. Second of all, it's the extent of geography. That's a huge country. Russians will tell you it calls out for some kind of authoritarian rule that's going to regulate everything. Otherwise, it just falls apart. The thing is, it falls apart anyway, even with the authoritarian rule and a loss of basic humanity. Peter Robinson, so great to talk. We have to do this again more often. We will be right back with an inspiring song that captures this moment in history. Coming up. It became a sensation uh, after the September 11th attacks. It was actually not written about that. It was written before September 11th. It uh, released originally in April of 2001. But then uh, uh, all around the world, the song Superman by Five for Fighting and by John Andrasik uh, became a phenomenon. Uh, it reached uh, literally 800 million views, and it the first five top 40 hit in the United States. It was also a major hit in Australia and New Zealand, reaching number two on both countries' national charts. It additionally reached the top 20 in Ireland, Italy, and Norway, nominated for a Grammy. Okay, John Andrasik has a, uh, a new song and he's on the road premiering it it's called one man can change the world and it's not about vladimir putin it is about um the other side the side of light and and, and decency and sanity uh, represented by uh the, this phenomenal moment in history where a former uh comedian, actor, uh, becomes the, the man of the hour. And uh, I, I've listened to the song four or five times, and uh, we're going to have John Andrasik joining us to uh, help uh, premiere this uh, song across the country. That coming up. Because one of the things that has been remarkable that I was talking with Peter Robinson about is people coming together, people in the arts community. Now, you surely remember that one of the, the big themes in the arts world, in the creative world, the world of entertainment and uh, creative talent has has been the idea of uh, moral relativism that uh, basically there is no good and evil that everything is different shades of this and shades of that people are rejecting that and and this is the most important thing about this moment that we're all living through and we're all experiencing is that idea that uh, uh, well you 
you have this horrible behavior by Russia, and no one is saying, yeah, but look at what America did to the Indians. I'm, I, there may be some people who are saying that. Or, or look, America had slavery. Okay, there's a recognition that that is a very, very different time than March of 2022. And the United States has been working toward a more perfect union. And uh, the Russia for the last 20 years has made zero progress in the right direction. And, and again, you have people in the arts and in entertainment. This, uh, I want to get back to the Schwarzenegger uh, sta statement, the tape that he released, which has had such a remarkable impact. Uh, the, uh, the news about that is that apparently is being viewed all over Russia and drawing a phenomenal response. It was addressed, Schwarzenegger's statement, and I'm not a huge Schwarzenegger fan usually, but this is outstanding, the way he spoke to the Russian people and the response that he's gotten. And, and here's another story, which the world of ballet, like the world of opera, or the world of symphonic music, or the world of fine arts and painting, it's all in arms right now. Uh, trying to oppose evil in the world. And one of the most extraordinary things is the ability to unite people. There's this story from the Washington Post this morning. A Bolshoi ballerina, Olga Smirnova, an international ballet star, and by the way, for people who follow ballet, she is one of the most respected, most admired dancers in the whole world. She recently publicly denounced the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and she's too famous for Putin to mess with. She has quit the famed Moscow Ballet Company, the Bolshoi Ballet, and joined the Dutch National Ballet, the Amsterdam organization announced yesterday. The artistic director of the uh, Dutch National Ballet, whose name is Ted Branson, said, the whole company is thrilled and energized. She's a beautiful artist and a beautiful human being. There's something really magical about her. She dances with her entire soul. So to have her join our company is wonderful, even though the situation behind it is so tragic and so awful. In a brave but risky move, Smirnova had condemned the war in Ukraine last week in a post on Telegram, which is popular overseas. We cannot remain indifferent to this global catastrophe, the dancer wrote. I never thought I would be ashamed of Russia, the ballerina continued. Now I feel that a line has been drawn that separates the before and the after. It hurts that people are dying, that people are losing the roofs over their heads or are forced to abandon their homes. Branson, the director of the Dutch ballet company she's joining, said Smirnova got in touch through a mutual friend to ask about joining his company. He said he has admired her for years, mostly from a distance, since she caught his eye at her graduation performance in St. Petersburg. The uh, war had devastating effects on a large number of Russian and Ukrainian dancers pursuing ballet careers around the globe. It's been a really tough few weeks, Branson said about those dancers. We have Ukrainian dancers whose parents are hiding in bomb shelters 
One 12-year veteran of his company has family in Kharkiv, which has come under heavy Russian bombardment. She managed to get her mother out, and she's arrived here, Branson said, but her brother and father can't leave because they're needed to fight. Everyone in the whole ballet world is trying to do what they can, he added. I can't offer jobs to everyone, but I can offer classes and training for dancers who are hoping to train while looking for jobs somewhere else. Ukrainian dancers who live in Russia have also been reaching out, and Branson said he is trying to send them to other countries where we may have connections. As for Smirnova, Olga Smirnova, she began rehearsals Wednesday and will dance in Amsterdam starting on April 3rd in the classic Russian ballet Raymonda, Alexander Glasunov ballet. Her opening night is already sold out. Okay, it's not a uh, huge sacrifice when you're that famous. I'm sure she can have a very pleasant life in Holland, but people are tearing up their lives. There's, there's that a TV producer who uh, was fined 30,000 rubles. And okay, I know, the ruble isn't worth that much right now. It only came to $280, but she is now facing, according to new laws, and they don't have anything preventing ex post facto laws in Russia. And under new laws, she could face 15 years in prison. And she has children who are 19 and 8. This, uh, uh, what she is going through, what, what various people are going through for the sake of decency, her name is Marina uh, Oysyanakova. And uh, inside the house where she has found temporary shelter provided by her attorneys, um, a television producer at the Kremlin's flagship network, Channel One, she at first thought she would join anti-war demonstrations on the streets of Moscow. Her son, fearing she would be arrested, hid her car keys. Then she settled on a more audacious plan as the evening news broadcast was starting on Monday. Ms. Ovsianakova got up from her desk, flashing her ID badge. She passed through security checkpoints. Bursting into view behind the show's anchor, she shouted, Stop the war, no to war. Before the camera cut away, she flashed a poster before millions of viewers, by now billions of viewers. It said, No war, stop the war, don't believe propaganda, they lie to you here. Russians against war. When this is happening on all over the world with people using their unique and God-given talent, and their access to communication to communicate this message. I think we are looking at a profound change in the way that people think and the way they see the need to take a stand in a struggle between light and darkness and taking a stand together with this greatest nation on God's green earth.